0: Let's jumpstart this day with a convention promo. It fills us with joy to meet up and study each day, and considerably so for Sunday special editions. So imagine, for this moment, that joy increased. We love more, don't we? A vision for you's biennial convention is that more, I kid you not. This fall, when others might be picking up school supplies and driving carpool, several 100 compulsive overeaters will be seeing what life looks like recovered eye to eye in our all together. Bam, what a vision. A Vision for You presents, in 68 days, Convention 2017, the power of the big book. Think about it. Looking into the eyes of your sponsor for the first time finally getting entire abstinence getting what step four step nine and step ten really can do and how it is all done sitting with that fellow you remember that fellow that by phone had helped keep you with keeping that bite down or talk to you off the ledge then being able to ask all those questions face to face you know those questions So come, no more hesitation. Join us in learning and celebrating. When is this convention? It's September 15th through the 17th, 2017 in Northern New Jersey at the Liberty International Airport Marriott Hotel and Convention Center. Here's three pieces of very important information. Again, three pieces of very important information. A vision for you convention, 2015 sold out about six weeks prior to convention, and we are so close to that point right now. We have secured 100 rooms, 100 double-double beds at the Renaissance Hotel at special, special convention prices. And we have free, continuous shuttle service just for missionaries between those two hotels, and there's only a mile and a half apart from each other. So if you have booked elsewhere, please rearrange and come book with us at the Renaissance. The deadline for registering and making reservations is Thursday, August 24, 2017. That's 46 days from now. And we have more great news. There will be a limited amount of scholarships awarded in need at convention this year. So your one-stop shopping place for all details, convention, including scholarships, are on our very fun, very friendly website at www.avisionforyou.info. Now that's a wrap. Here go. You all ready? I'm ready. So let's bring it on. A Vision for You Sunday Special Edition. Good morning, Leah.
1: Good morning, Melanie, and thank you. And good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, July 9, 2017. The share IDs for Friday, July 7th are the 7 a.m. Eastern, 10128, and the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 10130. This morning, A Vision for You presents Dr. Bob's Nightmare. We celebrate Dr. Bob's last drink on June 10, 1935, and that is considered to be the founding date of Alcoholics Anonymous. In 1939, the book, Alcoholics Anonymous, written by Bill Wilson, Dr. Bob, and other early members of the fellowship, contributed stories that were included in the book that came to be lovingly referred to as the big book. Dr. Bob's Nightmare is the detailed account of Dr. Bob's descent into the mad realm of alcoholism and his inspiring and uplifting story of his complete recovery. Stories such as Dr. Bob's Nightmare shows us what it was that worked and resulted in so many men and women who recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. Studying Dr. Bob's Nightmare and learning about the birth of AA will not only serve to strengthen our personal recovery. Yes, we just
2: lost you. Joining us this morning is
1: Harlan G. from Scottsdale, Arizona. Harlan is a devoted messenger in Overeaters Anonymous, carrying the message of recovery and teaching how to use the big book effectively. With great pleasure, I welcome Harlan this morning. Good morning, Harlan.
3: Good morning, Leah. I am, as you said, Harlan G., I'm a Recovered Compulsive Overeater in Sweltering, Scottsdale, Arizona. Um, Very, very glad to be here this morning. Thank you so much for having me. We're going to be talking this morning about the other one. We hear a lot in the first 164 pages about Bill Wilson, and as well we should. But this morning, we're going to turn our attention as best we can to Dr. Robert Holbrook-Smith, And Dr. Smith was born in St. Johnsbury, Vermont, on the 8th of August, 1879. And he he was to become the co-founder of AA. So let's begin on page 171. I was born in a small New England village of about 7,000 souls. The general moral standard was, as I recall it, far above the average. No beer or liquor was sold in the neighborhood excuse me, except that the state liquor agency where perhaps one might procure a pint if he could convince the agent that he really needed it. Without this proof, the expectant purchaser would be forced to depart empty-handed with none of what I later came to believe was the great panacea for all human ills. Men who had liquor shipped in from Boston or New York by express were looked upon with great distrust and disfavor by most of the good townspeople. The town was well-supplied with churches and schools in which I pursued my early educational activities. We're talking about 19th century Vermont. We're talking about a very, very uh, different atmosphere than what we see today, where only li- liquor could only be purchased through state stores. You have some states where that is still the case, um, but it was definitely the case in Vermont at that time. Bottom of 171. My father was a professional man of recognized ability, and both my father and mother were most active in church affairs. Both father and mother were considerably above average in intelligence. So the very first thing we sort of notice is, what did Bill and Bob have in common? And most of us have this in common, too, is that this disease is no respecter of intelligence. It really doesn't care who it affects. Most of you who I've spoken to are outrageously funny, personable people. I love the outreach calls I get from OA people most of the time. You guys are warm and wonderful and funny. But this disease is mind over matter. It doesn't mind killing us and we don't seem to matter. Top of 172. Unfortunately for me, I was the only child which perhaps engendered the selfishness which played such an important part in bringing on my alcoholism i'm an only child too and i am by my nature very selfish i am not by my nature someone who wants to share things i never had brothers and sisters excuse me i never had brothers and sisters i never had Cousins, aunts, uncles, I never had any of that as a kid. So it really, I, I got the idea early on that everything was about me, just like Dr. Bob is describing. And it really was a weapon which was going to rear its ugly head in my, in, in, uh, in my life because that selfishness brought me to the brink of death. Um, it, it just, it, it, never, it never was an asset. It was always a liability in my life. From childhood through high school, I was more or less forced to go to church, Sunday school, and evening service, Monday night Christian endeavor, and sometimes to Wednesday evening prayer meeting. This had the effect of making me resolve that when I was free from parental domination, I would never again darken the doors of the church. This resolution I kept steadfastly for the next 40 years, except when circumstances made it seem unwise to absent myself. I was dragged to synagogue as a kid and forced to go to Hebrew school after school, and I never really liked it. I never, my Hebrew was always really bad. Uh, I just felt like the prayers meant nothing to me. Had they been in English, maybe they would have gotten through to me. I'll never know. But it just seemed that I was really a stranger in a strange land. I never really looked around in a synagogue and felt at home. I never felt worthy of being there. There were people there who were far, far more religious than I and far, far more in obedience to the precepts of the religion, the, the laws of the religion than I, and I just felt like I didn't fit in. And this feeling of not fitting in in that kind of a setting was also something that I had to work on and continue to have to work on in my daily prayer life. God is a part of my life today. Prayer is a part of my life today, as is meditation. And I have a very strong, constant companionship with my creator today. But I have to work at it. But I work at it in my own way. I don't work at it in a way that is pre-prescribed for me by someone else. But my relationship with my higher power and my step 2, step 10, step 11, step 12 endeavors are a very, very integral ingredient in my recovery. And without them, I would certainly be thrown into the arms of a chocolate turtle or a Kit Kat bar. I'm in the middle of 172. After high school came four years in one of the best colleges in the country where drinking seemed to be a major extracurricular activity. Dr. Bob is going to do his undergraduate work at Dartmouth. No slouch there. He is admitted to Dartmouth. Well, let's let him tell you the story. Almost every, excuse me, drinking seemed to be a major extracurricular activity. Almost everyone seemed to do it. I did it more and more and had lots of fun without much grief, either physical or financial. Now, this is something that I can parallel with as well. Now, I later on paid hefty, hefty prices for my eating. No doubt that I paid hefty prices for my eating. But one of the things that my friends noticed about me was I seemed to be able to eat anything and everything in whatever quantities I wanted to eat them in and never was afflicted with heartburn or some of the other maladies that they seem to be afflicted by if they eat over a certain amount of something. It never seemed to matter to me. Now, of course, my body was obese, and I weighed more than I wanted to eat, but they would complain about getting sick to their stomach upon eating certain things that never seemed to even phase me. So I had this snapback ability that he's describing, but, of course, later in my life, that was certainly not to be the case. He goes on to say here, I'm in the middle of 172. I seem to be able to snap back the next morning better than most of my fellow drinkers who were cursed or perhaps blessed with a great deal of mourning after nausea. I had some mourning after nausea, but, again, some of my friends really complained about things like heartburn, things like that, which I never was affected by. Never once in my life have I had a headache, which fact which leads me to believe that I was an alcoholic almost from the start. My whole life seemed to be centered around doing what I wanted to do without regard for the rights, wishes, or privileges of anyone else, a state of mind which became more and more predominant as the years passed. I was graduated summa cum laude in the eyes of the drinking fraternity but not in the eyes of the dean. Now, he's talking about that extreme selfishness that I was afflicted by as well. From the time I was a little boy, I was very, very self-centered, full of self-pity, full of jealousy, full of rage, full of just outward hostility toward my environment. My mother was mentally ill. My mother had three distinct personalities. She could be a three-year-old one minute. She could be a screaming, raving lunatic the next minute. And she could be a completely together person the next minute. You never knew what you were going to get. You never knew how long it was going to last. And you certainly had no control over it. And I spent my life trying to make my parents and others into the people that I wanted them to be. My dad was 54 years old when I was born. He walked out of Europe, not during World War II, which most people, when you tell them of the anti Semitism and the murder and mayhem that he walked out of Europe or escaped Europe from, they always think Holocaust. He's before that. He came to this country in 1914. But when he came to this country, he came here as the sole survivor of murder and mayhem and anti-Semitism that the world up until that point had never seen until, of course, World War II eclipsed it. But the bottom line is my father's mother, father, he had eight, there was eight children in the family. There were nieces and nephews ranging from six weeks old to six years old, or eight years old, excuse me, eight years old. And his aunts and uncles, cousins lived on this estate. They were in the lumber business in Russia, in the area of Russia near Poland. And every one of those people were obliterated off the face of the earth in a night of murder and mayhem except for him. And this scarred him tremendously. And if you've never seen your father cry, I've seen my father cry thousands of times. My father could be, I'm born and raised in Chicago. My father could be walking down the street uh, in the old Albany Park neighborhood around uh, Lawrence and Kedzie, where we lived in West Rogers Park. Uh, and he could be walking down Devon Avenue in Chicago, and he could hear something. He could, he could smell a food. He could just hear a sound or a word, and he would burst into tears because his mind would go right back to that night of murder and mayhem. And it was his brother, Charlie, who pushed him out the door and said, run, run. And that's why my middle name is Charles today. My middle name is Charles because of the brother that saved my father's life. But I wanted my father to feel safe, and he never felt safe. He always felt like the the murderous rage that had killed his family was going to rear its ugly head here in the United States. And I have very vivid memories when Ruby killed Oswald in 63. He was absolutely certain that this was the end. This was it. And it's funny how my mind works. Um, Sometimes when I'll hear about uh, a particular person of my faith getting arrested, I don't want to mention the person's name, but, you know, the one where the big Ponzi scheme, the big, you know, financial thing. I know that he'd be walking the floors thinking, uh-oh, this is it. They're going to kill us now for sure. And I wanted them to be Rob and Laura Petrie, but I got Max and Virginia Grabowski instead, which was extremely different. If you're too young to know who Rob and Laura Petrie were, you can Google them, Rob and Laura Petrie. That's what I wanted for parents, but I didn't get them. I got Max and Virginia, but that's okay. I'm alive today. I'm at the bottom of 172. The next three years I spent in Boston, Chicago, and Montreal in the employ of a large manufacturing concern. This would be Fairbanks-Morris. Fairbanks-Morris sold very heavy hardware. They sold railroad cars, railway supplies. Selling rail- I'm at the top of 173. Selling railway supplies, gas engines of all sorts, and many other items of heavy hardware. During these years, I drank as much as my purse permitted, still without paying too great a penalty. Although I was beginning to have morning jitters at times, I lost only a half day's work during these three years. And in my life, as I ate, I paid a very, very heavy price all along the way. Maybe I didn't get heartburn. I've already established that I didn't. Maybe I didn't get headaches. But what I did get was a morbidly obese body And what I did get was a distended body. And this disease took me out. This disease ransacked me. This disease tore me asunder from the very earliest ages on. And I I have very vivid memories when I was three and four years old of people screaming at my mother and screaming at my father about how fat I was getting and why were they letting me eat chocolate turtles and why were they letting me eat Kit Kat bars. And when I turned to be about five or six, they started screaming directly at me. And what they didn't understand was that there was nothing in this world that I would not have done to acquiesce to their demands. I wanted to listen And obey what they were telling me and they would tell me things like fat boys don't get girlfriends i found that to be a hundred percent true they told me if you want to get a good job you can't be fat i found that to be true they told me that i would feel better if i didn't eat so much and boy i found that to be true when i didn't eat so much I felt anger better, I felt fear better, I felt like killing myself better, I felt lots of things much, much better. And as those feelings would burst to the surface inside my soul, the only thing I could think of was to eat more food, because even though I didn't understand at six years of age, the effect that Dr. Silkworth tells us about in the doctor's opinion, And even though I didn't understand the physical allergy, I knew that an Oreo cookie would take the edge off and it would make me feel better instantly. And if I could just weather the storm of the people screaming at me, if I could weather the storm and wear them out and I learned how to manipulate them, sometimes I would just fake stupid like, Really? I'm overweight? You're kidding. No, I would, uh, sometimes I would just play, play stupid and let them lecture me because I knew that if I wore them out, eventually they would go away and leave me alone. Or I learned to just psychologically, or or not psychologically, really, just emotionally, that's the word I'm looking for, not psychologically. I'm looking emotionally just to shut down and, and, and let them beat me down emotionally and just let them yell at me, let them scream at me, and eventually they're going to tire of it. Sometimes, as I got a little older, adults and kids, but adults too, would push me and throw me down and slap my hand if I was reaching for food. So there was some of that as well. I learned to take it because I, in my mind, thought I deserved it. And there were people who treated me very, very horribly because of my obese body. But in my mind, I absolutely deserved it because if I didn't eat so much, I wouldn't be in this situation right now. And so I learned to hate myself as a child because if I wasn't so fat, I wouldn't be in the position where I had to take this kind of crap from people who, although they, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, They said they had good intentions, and I believe that they did, but sometimes they went over the top. Let's take a look at 173. My next move was to take up the study of medicine. He's now going to enroll in the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Entering one of the largest universities in the country, there I took up the business of drinking with much greater earnestness than I had previously shown on account of my enormous capacity for beer, I was elected to membership in one of the drinking societies and soon became one of the leading spirits. Many mornings I had gone to classes and even though fully prepared, would turn and walk back to the fraternity house because of my jitters, not daring to enter the classroom for fear of making a scene should I be called on for recitation. Let's look at the parallel here between Bill Wilson's law career and let's take a look at his medical career and let's take a look at something in my life as being all parallel. Every dream I dreamed was eradicated, altered, or taken, or just obliterated off the face of the earth by this illness. Everything that I wanted had to be tempered with, oh, but that has to wait till after you lose weight. Oh, but that has to wait till after you lose weight. And I could not for the life of me dare to dream the dreams that young men dream about girls, about careers, about anything. There was nothing in my life that was attainable in my mind while I was fat. While I was fat, there was nothing to do but suffer And wait for that magical day when I will suddenly become thin, when I will be lucky instead of unlucky, when I will be chosen to be thin rather than chosen to be fit. And, of course, that day came only after massive, massive, massive amounts of work and thorough effort in this program, middle of 173. This went from bad to worse until sophomore spring, when after a prolonged period of drinking, I made up my mind that I could not complete my course, so I packed my grip and went south to spend a month on a large farm owned by a friend of mine. Sound like Bill's story when Bill and Lois go to work on a farm, and it's the last honest manual labor he was to do for many a day? Isn't that funny that they both went and worked on a farm? When I got the fog out of my brain, I decided quitting school was very foolish and that I had better return and continue my work. When I reached school, I discovered the faculty had other ideas on the subject. After much argument, they allowed me to return and take my exams, all of which I passed credibly. But they were much disgusted and told me they would attempt to struggle along without my presence. After many painful discussions, they finally gave me my credits. Apple 174, and I migrated to another of the leading universities of the country and entered as a junior that fall. Now, here's something that's a little ironic. The medical school that he's going to gravitate to is Rush in Chicago. Now, let's back up to his senior year in high school, and he is going to meet a girl who was attending a university in Boston, Massachusetts, the name of which I wish I could think of in my mind right now. I would give my car and house if I could think of it. But he's going to meet a girl named Ann. And Anne, 17 years into their courtship, was to become his wife. And Anne was visiting there from Boston. She's originally born and raised in Oak Park, Illinois, which is right outside Chicago. I'm born and raised in Chicago. There's Lake Michigan going through my veins. And Ann, is, he is going to be very, very taken with Anne. And one of the things that he wanted to do was to be closer to her. And he, he applied to Rush and he got in. Now, why is the name Rush, and, and Rush Presbyterian St. Luke's was a hospital in Chicago. Now it has a different name as well. Because it's, why is that funny? Why is that cosmically ironic? Because it's named after Benjamin Rush. And Benjamin Rush was the nation's first Surgeon General. He was appointed by George Washington. And in 1790, he's also one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. But Benjamin Rush in 1790 wrote a paper in which he believed that alcoholism was an illness, but he couldn't prove it and he had no cure for it. And Benjamin Rush believed that alcoholism was an illness, and Dr. Bob is doing his last little bit of medical school and his internship in Rush in Chicago, so named for Benjamin Rush. God likes to laugh too. 174. There, my drinking became so much worse, it's a progressive illness, that the boys in the fraternity house where I lived felt forced to send for my father, who made a long journey in the vain endeavor to get me straightened around. This had little effect, however, for I kept on drinking and used a great deal more hard liquor than in former years. And we know one thing as eaters, as drinkers, as drug addicts, gamblers, whatever, that the illness of compulsivity, the illness of addiction is a progressive illness. What does that mean? It means it progresses, it gets worse over time. It never gets better. It gets worse over time. And as such, we have an accountability to our food plans, to our physical well-being, to continue to monitor our intake of food because unlike the alcoholic and unlike the drug addict, they can cease consuming drugs. They can cease consuming uh, liquor. We can't of consuming food, we have to monitor what we're doing. We have to completely look at these things with someone who knows what they're doing. Because if I went back to eating what I ate five years ago, which was abstinent then. If I went back to eating what I ate five years ago, certainly 10 years ago, you know, whatever, I would gain weight in leaps and bounds because what worked for me then will not work for me now. 174. Coming up to final exams, I went on a particularly strenuous spree. When I went to write the examinations, my hand trembled so I could not hold a pencil. I passed in at least three absolutely blank books. Sound like Bill's story? Does to me too. I was, of course, soon in the carpet, and and the upshot was that I had to go back for two more quarters and remain absolutely dry if I wish to graduate. This I did and proved myself satisfactory to the faculty, both in deportment and scholastically. I conducted myself so credibly, I was able to secure a much-coveted internship in a Western city. Now he's in Akron, Ohio. He is now doing an internship at City Hospital in Akron, Which is considered the elite hospital in that area of Ohio. He is now in Akron and he is now working at City Hospital, where I spent two years. During these two years, I was kept so busy that I hardly left the hospital at all. Consequently, I could not get into any trouble. We know that that's very temporary. When those two years were up, I opened an office downtown. I had some money all <clears throat> I had some money all the time in the world and considerable stomach trouble. I soon discovered that a couple of drinks would alleviate my gastric distress for at at least for a few hours at a time, so it was not at all difficult for me to return to my former excessive indulgence. And what is he gonna find now? That while he was dry for two years, his disease was progressing as it is with all of us. We've all heard that old booby mindset. Booby mindset is a Yiddish word. Uh, I don't know that it's going to be the Yiddish word of the day. Every time I do a special edition, we have a Yiddish word of the day. I'm not sure if that's it or not. But a booby is a grandmother and a mindset is a story. So it's a story your grandmother would tell you that while you're in your OA meeting, your disease is doing push-ups. Well, that's a good one, but we we might come up with a better one later. Bottom of 174. By this time, I was beginning to pay very dearly. The disease is progressing physically and in hope of relief, voluntarily incarcerated myself at least a dozen times in one of the local sanitariums. So he is going in voluntarily to a drying out center. I was between Skyla, I think it's Skyla, I've never been sure about the pronunciation, and Shibreth. This is between a rock and a hard place. This comes from the writings of Homer. And Homer writes about the uh, sea uh, right around where Italy and, and Greece are in the Mediterranean. And there's one hazard for the sailors. And if you try to avoid it too much, you'll go to the other hazard. So you have to kind of negotiate right down the middle. But what this means is a rock and a hard place. Now, because if I did not drink, my stomach tortured me, and if I did, my nerves did the same thing. After three years of this, I wound up in the local hospital where they attempted to help me, but I would get my friends to smuggle me a quart, or I would steal the alcohol about the building so that I got rapidly worse. And we see now that he is plunging into an absolute alcoholic situation that he cannot get out of. He is the fly in the spider web. And the more that he struggles, the more he is going to be entrapped by his own disease. If I ate more, I felt bad. If I ate less, I felt bad. No matter what I did, I could not beat this illness. This illness beat me down. And this illness put me in a situation where I couldn't win. I just couldn't get out of its way. Finally, excuse me, 175, my father had to send a doctor out from my hometown to who managed to get me back there in some way. And I was out of I was in bed about two months before I could venture out of the house. He's very sick now, very, very sick. I stayed about town a couple of months more and then returned to resume my practice. I think I must have been thoroughly scared by what had happened, or by the doctor, or probably both, so that I did not touch a drink again until the country went dry. Now, we're going to have the Volstead Act here, the 18th Amendment. The 18th Amendment was the great experiment. The great experiment was uh, that we're going to take liquor and we're going to make it illegal. And so the Volstead Act, the 18th Amendment of the Constitution was passed. And the country went dry. Let's see where he goes from there. With the passing of the 18th Amendment, I felt quite safe. I knew everyone would buy a few bottles or cases of liquor as their exchequers permitted. These were these tickets that they gave you so that you could buy some as the, as the law was going through, and then you could buy none. And then it would soon be, and that, that, huh, I wish I could speak, and then it would soon be gone. Therefore, it would make no great difference, even if I should do some drinking. At that time, I was not aware of the almost unlimited supply the government made it possible for its doctor, us doctors to obtain. Neither had I knowledge of the bootlegger, illegal, this is illegal liquor, uh, usually smothered in from Canada, smothered in from another country, Ireland, or homemade, the bootlegger who soon appeared on the horizon. I drank with moderation at first, but it took me only a relatively short time to drift back into the old habits, which had wound up so disastrously before. So here he is repeating behaviors as I did that had never worked, and he's trying them again, and this is exactly my life. Eating a little bit on this day a week, eating a little bit on that day a week, having this, having that. And all of a sudden, I was in complete and utter relapse. I could not get out of my own way. Nothing I would do, nothing could I do to get out of the way of the steamroller that was killing me, which we call compulsive overeating. During the next few years, bottom number 175, I developed two distinct phobias one was the fear of not sleeping, and the other was the fear of running out of liquor. Not being a man of means, I knew that I did not, if I did not stay sober enough to earn money, I would run out of liquor. Most of the time, therefore, I did not take the morning drink, which I craved so badly, but instead would fill up on large doses of sedatives to quiet the jitters, which distressed me terribly occasionally I would yield to the morning craving, but if I did, it would be only a few hours before I would be quite unfit for work. This would lessen my chances of smuggling some home that evening, which in turn would mean a night of futile tossing around in bed followed by a morning of unbearable jitters. During the subsequent 15 years, I had sense enough never to go to the hospital if I had been drinking, and very seldom did I receive patients I would sometimes hide out in one of the clubs of which I was a member, and had the habit at times of registering at a hotel under a fictitious name. But my friends usually found me, and I would go home if they promised that I should not be scolded. Now, Doctor Bob was a great big guy. He was over six feet tall, very tall, very lanky, just like Bill Wilson. The two Vermonters were tall, lanky guys. But Bill, or excuse me, Doctor Bob was kind of a character he loved nicknames he loved uh you know different characters from literature and he would you know register in hotels as oliver gulliver he'd register in hotels as you know whoever and that's how his friends would find him but he can't he can't beat the system and the money part of it is now rearing its ugly head as it did with me During the late 1970s and early 1980s, I came into OA in 79. Um, Money was a huge, huge factor in my illness. Um, I was writing a lot of bad checks to people. I wasn't paying my taxes. I wouldn't have done so much of that if I would have known I was going to have to pay it back. But the bottom line is, is that I did that and I had to pay those people back. And it was very embarrassing, very, very tough time in my life. And I had no uh, real income of, to, to keep up with it. My food habit in the late 1970s was about 100 to $150 a day at those prices. And then I came in in 79, so things tapered off quite a bit. Um, but my food habit was very, very expensive. I'm in the middle of 176. If my wife was planning to go out in the afternoon, I would get a large supply of liquor and smuggle at home and hide it in the coal bin, the clothes chute, over door jams, over beans in the cellar, and in cracks in the cellar tile. I also made use of old trunks and chests, the old can container and even the ash container, the water tank on the toilet I never used because it looked too easy I found out later that my wife inspected it frequently. I used to put eight or twelve ounce bottles of alcohol in a fur-lined glove and toss it onto the back airing porch when winter days got dark enough. My bootlegger had hidden alcohol at the back steps where I could get it at my convenience. Sometimes I would bring it in my pockets, and but they were all they were inspected, and that became too risky. I used to put it in. <clears throat> excuse me, I used to put it up in four-ounce bottles and stick several in my stocking tops. This worked nicely until my wife and I went to see Wallace Berry in Tugbone Andy, after which the pant leg and stocking routine were out. Um, You can't see me, but I'm wearing my Dr. Bob t-shirt. It's uh, something I bought in the house next door to Dr. Bob's house in Akron, Ohio. And when Overeaters Anonymous had its world convention in Cleveland, we took a couple of busloads down And we went to Akron, Ohio, 855 Ardmore Street. And we went to Dr. Bob's house. And I would suggest that before God closes your eyes, go down there and see uh, the airing porch. See uh, the the back steps. See these things. Go to the cellar. Go to where they had the coal bin. Some of you are old enough like me to remember when houses and buildings were heated with coal and the coal man would come and they would put the coal down the coal door into the coal bin, and you'd shovel the coal into the furnace, which I lived in an apartment building, so we didn't do the shoveling. But I have distinct memories of the coal guy coming, and uh, sometimes we'd put pieces of coal in snowballs and throw them at each other. Man, they'd hurt. They would hurt. That's like a rock inside there. But uh, if you go to the house at 855 Ardmore Street, And you read this story after you've actually been there. It just heightens the meaning for you. So I'm not one to give advice, but were it me, I would get my butt over there. Get your tuchus over there to 855 Ardmore Street in Akron, Ohio. It will change your life forever. 177. I will not take space to relate all my hospital or sanitarium experiences. During all this time, we became more or less ostracized by our friends. We could not be invited out because I would surely get tight and my wife dared not invite people in for the same reason. My phobia for sleeplessness demanded that I get drunk every night. But in order to get more liquor for the next night, I had to stay sober during the day, at least up to 4 o'clock. This routine went on a few inter, inter, with few interruptions for 17 years. 17 years, he got drunk every single day, and in my lifetime, there were many, many years where I got, I would overeat every single day without exception. There was never a day in my life where I wasn't getting drunk, or getting, I wasn't drunk, where I wasn't compulsively overeating. There was never a day where the food felt like it was okay, like it was under some modicum of control. And that was something that just tore me to shreds. 17 years of getting drunk every day. It was really a horrible nightmare, this earning money, getting liquor, smuggling at home, getting drunk, morning jitters, taking large doses of sedatives to make it possible for me to earn more money, and so on ad nausea. I used to promise my wife, my friends, and my children that I would drink no more. Promises which seldom kept me sober, even through the day, though I was very sincere when I made them. <sighs> Sorry. I the allergies are up again. I would promise people who loved me, they had tears in their eyes, and I would promise them that I wouldn't eat that way anymore. And I did. And I would often do it within minutes, hours, certainly a day of making those promises. And Bill Wilson would make those promises to Lois. And we talked about that when we studied Bill's story. We talked about that In the Bible that they had, Lois and Bill, every year Bill would write, Lo, this is the year where I'm going to stop. Lo, this is the year when John Barleycorn is not going to rule our lives. Lo, I love you so much. This is the year I'm going to stop it. And every year Bill meant those promises. And every year Bob meant those promises. Bill loved Lois. Lois loved Bill. Bob loved Ann. Anne loved Bob. And he meant it. He meant it. But he couldn't do it because of an overpowering desire to do so. And let's just say for a second here that Bob did not understand why he was drinking. So let's take a look at why he was drinking. Bob was not drinking because he liked the taste of alcohol. Bob was drinking to overcome a craving that he could not overcome. Was liquor Bob's problem? Absolutely not. Was liquor Bob's problem? I'm going to say it twice. I know I've already said it. I'm going to say it again because when I say this on special editions and when I say this to people that call me, this takes them aback. And that's why I'm saying it twice. For the alcoholic, liquor is not the problem. Liquor is the solution to the problem. For the compulsive overeater, food is never the problem. Food is the solution to the problem. And if food is the solution to the problem, what is the problem? The problem is the buildup of everyday normal human emotion. All human beings have happiness, fear, jealousy, anger, regret, remorse. All human beings have these emotions. And in the soul and the mind of a normal human being, a non-addicted human being, these emotions will reduce to a manageable level by them doing very, very simple things. Things like going to the gym, walking the dog, playing with the cat, uh, drinking a glass of wine, making love, watching their favorite television program. Whatever it is they do, reading, whatever it is they do, these emotions will abate, but not so in the soul of a compulsive reader or an alcoholic or an addict. These emotions will pinball around and they will wake up on the emotional side of the brain, the mental twist. And the mental twist will activate with a very, very strong suggestion to its host that he or she eat an Oreo cookie. Funny how my mental twist said, go eat some tuna fish with some lettuce.
4: My, my, my mental
3: twist never said that to me. Uh, my mental twist says, eat an Oreo, eat a chocolate turtle, eat a Kit Kat bar. Why? Because my mental twist knows that those foods will produce an instant effect that will give me a sense of ease and comfort instantly so that the emotional level will reduce and I will feel better immediately. Now, on the intelligence side of my brain, my intelligence side of my brain says, oh, no, don't you dare eat that Oreo cookie. Don't you want to go on at least one date with a girl before you die? Don't you at least want to know what it feels like to walk down the street with a girl? Don't you want to know what it looks like to buy clothes in a normal store? Don't you want to know what it's like to look at yourself in the mirror and not be thoroughly and utterly disgusted to the point where you wish you were dead? And the emotional side of the brain calls up one of its components to this disease to aid the mental twist called the mental blank spot. And the mental blank spot is a built-in forgetter. And the built-in forgetter eradicates any memory I have of what the food has done to me, and it will only allow me to focus in on what the food does for me. Now, in a normal brain, the intelligent will outweigh the emotional, but in the brain of an addict, the emotional will vanquish the intelligent And I eat an Oreo cookie with every intention of eating just one or two. And I eat the entire package. Because I eat one Oreo cookie and about nine seconds in, I feel fantastic. Man, does that feel good. The girl I have a crush on is sure to be mine. The bank account, which I no longer have, is going to seethe and swell with money through no effort on my part at all. And everybody is going to now stick to my script and treat me good. And about 10 seconds in, the pall of remorse and shame and regret are upon me. And I feel horrible. But I cannot stop eating because I have sprung the physical allergy. And that physical allergy makes it impossible for me to stop eating Oreo cookies. And I eat the entire container and some potato chips and a pizza and a gallon of ice cream and on and on and on. And the more I eat, the more I want, the more I want, the more I eat, the more I eat, the more I want. And it's just
2: endless. So it begs the question. What if I could find a way to live where my mind is not
3: locked in on the sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly by eating an Oreo cookie? What if I could find a way to live where I already feel better? And the process of bringing the necessary power into the equation is simply called recovery. And that's what this is all about, Charlie Brown. This is about substituting the effect of the spiritual awakening as a result of the steps for the effect that is brought about by the Oreo cookie. There are two doors in front of Dr. Bob and two doors in front of me. When I feel these emotions building up inside of me, there are two doors. One door is marked eat the food. And that will work for about 10 seconds and it has devastating, death-defying side effects. The other door that Carol Merrill is standing in front of is marked spiritual awakening. And the spiritual awakening will abate these emotions just as effectively, but it's going to take a little work. But instead of death-defying side effects, I will get a lifetime of deep-seated fulfillment, purpose, and true happiness. That's what Bob is standing in front of, but he doesn't know about door number two that Cheryl Merrill is standing in front of. Let's go to the bottom of 177. For the benefit of those experimentally inclined, I should mention the so-called beer experiment. When beer first came back, they when, when they passed the 18th Amendment, there was such backlash that they allowed beer to come back. They wouldn't. They still wouldn't let you have any hard liquor, but Roosevelt passed the beer thing so that you could get some beer. And I think wine too, but I know for sure beer, obviously. When beer first came back, I thought I was safe. I could drink all I wanted of that. Wouldn't that be something if we could eat, you know, think we could eat all we want of something? That would, been, that would have been suicide for me. It was harmless. Nobody ever got drunk on beer, right? Nobody ever got that on one bag of potato chips. Yeah, right. So I filled the cellar full with the permission of my good wife. It was not long before I was drinking at least a case and a half a day. A case and a half a day. Holy mackerel. I put on 30 pounds of weight in about two months, looked like a pig, and I was uncomfortable from the shortness of breath. It then occurred to me that after one was all smelled up with beer, nobody could tell what had been drunk. So I began to fortify my beer with straight alcohol. Of course, the result was very bad, and that ended the beer experiment. Now we're about to see God's hand. We're now about to see God coming in to throw light and warmth into the shivering, dark, freezing, cold cave of alcoholism we're going to see the constellations of his miracles coming together because this is something that God ordained, I believe, or it wouldn't have grown, it wouldn't have flourished, it wouldn't have been as successful as what we see today. And this is something that is, in my opinion, nothing short of a miracle. Let's read. I'm I'm at 178. About the time of the beer experiment, I was thrown in with a crowd of people who attracted me because of their seeming poise, health, and happiness. This is late 1932, late 1932, and the crowd of people that he is going to be thrown in with is going to be people from the Oxford Group movement. The Oxford Group was started by Frank Buckman, who was a Lutheran minister in Pennsylvania who moved to England right near Oxford University. And when they were on a trip in South Africa to evangelize, the porters would write in wax on the window who was to occupy that uh, car, or that, not the car, the compartment, and they kept writing Oxford. And after writing Oxford on a bunch of them, people started calling them Oxford Group, Oxford Group. And then by virtue of the fact that they were near Oxford University, the name stuck, and they became the Oxford Group Movement. But they were not concerned with alcoholism at all. What they were concerned with was infusing enthusiasm back into first century Christianity. And first, Buckman believed that Christians had lost their zeal, had lost their enthusiasm. Enthusiasm is a good word to be talking about because it comes from two Greek words, theos from God. theos is the root of enthusiasm from God. And Buckman went to China on a mission and saw Christians in China that were highly enthusiastic for their religion because of altruism And they were giving of themselves with no thought of return. And he believed that they had tapped into a secret. And it was this altruism that he believed was going to inspire people to come back to Christianity and to come in with an enthusiasm and fejos from God. And Dr. Bob is now going to Oxford group meetings in Akron. The reason that the Oxford group was strong in Akron at that time was because of Harvey Firestone, who owned Firestone Tires. They used to call Akron Tire Town. I think they still do. Tire Town, because Goodyear was there. The Cyberlings owned Goodyear. Firestone was there. Goodrich was there. A lot of the tires that you drove on came out of Akron, Ohio. Uh, Ohio. Harvey Firestone had a drunken son. And in an attempt to cure his son of his alcoholism, Harvey Firestone made the money available to bring these big, huge names in the Oxford group movement, excuse me, to come and speak in Akron. Otherwise, they probably wouldn't have come to such a small town. So let's take a look. We're on 178, which I could never do. And they seemed very much at ease on all occasions and appeared very healthy More than these attributes, they seemed happy. I was self-conscious and ill at ease most of the time. My health was at a breaking point and I was thoroughly miserable. I sensed they had something I did not have from which I might readily profit. I learned that it was something of a spiritual nature which did not appeal to me very much, but I thought I could do no harm. I gave the matter much time and study for the next two and a half years now. He is in the Oxford group. Bob is in the Oxford group two and a half years. When he meets Bill, Bill was only in the Oxford group six months. Bill didn't start going to the Oxford group until late November of 34. But Bob came in late 32. But Bob never connected the dots. Well, let's let him tell you. I gave him, uh, but I still got tight every night. So he's going to the Oxford group meetings and he's drinking every night. And there are people in L.A., and I was one of them, who I would go to meetings and give a sort of pretensive show, uh, but I would eat all the time. And there's people, unfortunately, that do that today. I read everything I could find and talked to everyone who I thought knew anything about it. My wife became deeply interested, and it was her interest that sustained me, though I at no time sensed that it might be an answer to my liquor problem because he never understood that he couldn't take the first drink and that he had to take these actions. He never put it down. How my wife kept her faith and courage during all those years, I'll never know, but she did. If she had not, I know I would have been dead a long time ago. For some reason, we alcoholics seem to have the gift of picking out the world's finest women Why they should be subjected to the tortures we inflict upon them, I cannot explain. Can't explain it either, but alcoholics seem to have a hold on women that us fat boys will never have. We'll just never, never, never have. Okay, before we read the next paragraph, let's back up and give a little bit of a backstory as to what's going on. In the Oxford group meetings that, that Bob attended, there was a woman named Delphine Weber and a woman named Henrietta Cyberling And Delphine Weber was very, very concerned about Bob Smith's drinking. And unbeknownst to Bob Smith, she approached Henrietta Cyberling of the Goodyear Tire family about a prayer meeting for Dr. Bob to pray for some solution to his drinking problem. There were Oxford groupers there and they met at the home of T. Henry and Claris Williams. T. Henry and Claris Williams were pillars of the Oxford group meetings at that time and continued to be so even after the formation of AA. They hosted many, many of the meetings on Wednesday night. That the drunk squad of the Oxford group was to attend. T. Henry and Clarice Williams hosted this meeting. Dr. Bob was not there. And they got together and they prayed to God in April of 1935 for a solution to Bob's drinking. April of 1935 in New York, Bill. Wilson is preparing to go to Akron, Ohio on a proxy fight over a tool and die company that makes tire-making equipment, and Bill is visiting with Dr. Silkworth about his approach, and Silkworth says, I've heard of some of the shenanigans you're pulling out there, Bill, taking these drunks to the Oxford group meetings, and they don't want to go and you're preaching at these guys from a moral hilltop. You need to tell these people what I told you about the fatal malady, the physical allergy, and the twist of the mind. Bill is now preparing to come to Akron. Well, let's let them tell you. About this time, a lady called up my wife, that's Henrietta Cyber One Saturday afternoon, saying she wanted me to come over that evening to meet a friend of hers who might help me. Let's stop right there. Bill Wilson comes to Akron, Ohio, on this proxy flight. He's at the Mayflower Hotel in Akron, downtown Akron. It's a Saturday afternoon. There's a church directory on one side of, a, of the of the lobby and a bar at the other side of the lobby. Bill is listening to the music and the laughter and the conversation coming out of the bar. He's on very shaky ground. It's a lonely Saturday. He doesn't really even have the money to go back to New York because his business associates have abandoned him there in Akron. He could have easily gotten drunk. He goes into the bar and gets nickels to make phone calls. He starts calling these guys. Now, we think that Reverend Tunks was the first guy he called. Uh-huh. Nope. He called a bunch of them, and he told them that he was a rumhound from New York, and he needed another drunk to talk to. Some of them said, well, so what are you calling me for? I don't even drink. And if you're that into it, I'll see you in church tomorrow morning. Click, goodbye. I don't know about you, but I sell on the phone and I train people to sell on the phone. A lot of people would have given up, but he persisted. And he got a hold of this guy called Reverend Tunks, who was an Episcopal minister in Akron, Ohio. And Reverend Tunks told him that he knew of somebody in the Oxford group meeting and he gave him a list of some people in the Oxford group meetings. And one of them was Henrietta Cyberling. And since Cyberling owned Goodyear, and Bill falsely assumed that it was the wife of Cyberling. it was really the daughter-in-law, she was going through a divorce, she was living in the gatehouse, as a last-ditch effort, he calls Henrietta Cyberling on Mother's Day, 1935. Henrietta Cyberling wasn't surprised in the least that he was calling because her faith was strong and they had asked God for guidance of what to do about Bob's drinking four weeks previous at their special Oxford group meeting at the home of T. Henry and Clarice Williams. She said to him as naturally as anything, come right over. He goes over to the Cyberling gatehouse. Let's let the book take us from what happens from that point on. It was the day before mother's day and I had come home plastered carrying a big potted plant, which I said, Set, excuse me, it was the day before Mother's Day, I, I screwed up there, <laughs> and the bill part of it The Saturday. Nah, okay. Sat down on the table and forthwith went upstairs and passed out. The next day she called again, wishing to be polite, though I felt very badly, I said, let's make the call, and extracted from my wife a promise that we would not stay over 15 minutes. And that's exactly what Smitty, his son, and Sue, his daughter, told biographers that he extracted from Anne a promise that they wouldn't stay more than 15 minutes. We entered her house at exactly 5 o'clock, and it was 11.15 when we left. I had a couple of shorter talks with this man afterward, and stopped drinking abruptly. (laughs) Bang! This dry spell lasted for about three weeks, and then I went to Atlantic City to attend several days' meeting of a national society of which I was a member. This is the American Medical Association Convention in Atlantic City, New Jersey in 1935. Bob got drunk at this convention every year and planned to get drunk at this one, too. Ann Smith begs Bill, who now is living in the Smith home, he's living with them. They have invited him to stay. Bob and Bill had their very famous conversation. What did Bill bring Bob? Did he bring him religion? No. Did he bring him whatever? No. He gave him identification. Now, he told Bob of the allergy, which even as a physician, Bob did not know, and he told him of the mental twist. But he convinced Bob that he, he, he could not even take so much as the first drink. But Bob knew in the back of his mind that he had one more good drunk left in him And nobody was going to tell him he couldn't get drunk at the AMA convention. And there was something else we'll get to in a minute. I drank all the scotch they had on the train and bought several quarts on my way to the hotel. This was on Sunday. I got tight that night and stayed sober Monday till after the dinner and proceeded to get tight again. I drank all I dared in the bar and then went to my room to finish the job. Tuesday, I started in the morning, getting well organized by noon. I did not want to disgrace myself. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I then checked out. I bought some more liquor on the way to the depot. I had to wait some time for the train. I remembered nothing from then on until I woke at a friend's house in a town near home. This was at the nurse's, nurse's house in Ravenna, Ohio, which is one of the suburbs of, of uh, Akron. I almost said Chicago. One of the suburbs of Akron. The nurse that ran his office, he comes to her home and he is drunk as a skunk. I mean, drunk as a skunk. And he comes into her home. And what she does is she calls Ann Smith and Bill, excuse me, Bill is there too. And they come out in the car and they get him. And, well, let's let the book tell you. These good people noticed my wife, notified my wife who sent my newly made friend over to get me, that would be Bill Wilson, he came and got me home and to bed, gave me a few drinks that night and one bottle of beer the next morning. That was to even it out. That was June the 10th, 1935. That was my last drink as I write nearly four years have passed. Now, that actually wasn't the 10th of June that they brought him home They brought him home a couple of days before that. The 10th of June was a Monday in 1935. They actually brought him home on the 7th, which was Friday. And for a couple of days, he sobered up. And as he was sobering up and he would wake up in the morning, his hand would be shaking. And he really needed to do this surgery because he needed the money. He needed the money, and the patient needed this surgery, and he was really the only qualified surgeon in Akron to do this operation. And so he said to Bill, and Bill wasn't quite sure what he meant. He said, Bill, I'm going to go through with it. And Bill wasn't sure if you mean the operation. No, Bob said, no, I'm going to go through with the program because there was one part of the program that he was not going to do. The one thing he was not going to do was to make complete restitution to the people that he had harmed. He was afraid that if he went around Akron making amends, restitution was an Oxford group group term, and if he made amends to these people that everybody would know he was an alcoholic. Well, the only one in Akron that, that didn't know that Bob was an alcoholic was Bob. Everyone else knew that he was an alcoholic. But he now, okay, that was June the 10th, 1935. That was the day of my last drink as I write nearly four years have passed. Now, let's take a look at what happened that day. Bob goes in on the 10th of June, Monday, June 10th, to do the operation. He makes an arrangement that when the operation is done, he'll call in to the house and Bill is going to get him, take him home, and put him to bed. Bill, right before the operation, right before Bob leaves, gives him a beer to steady his hand. Hours and hours go by, June 10th, 1935. Hours go by. No Bob. 11.45 p.m. on the night of June 10th, 1935, here comes Dr. Bob walking down Ardmore Street, sober as anything, what had happened? He he went around Akron making restitution to the people that he had harmed and he never drank again as long as he lived. In making his restitution, he was completely surrendered to the process. The question might naturally come into your mind would be what what did the man do or say that was different from what others had done or said? It must be remembered that I read a great deal and talked to everyone who knew or thought they knew anything about the subject of alcoholism. But this was a man who had experienced many years of frightful drinking, who had most of the drunkard's experience known to man, who had been cured by the very means I had been trying to employ, that is to say, the spiritual approach. He gave me information about the subject of alcoholism, which was undoubtedly helpful, the allergy and the twist of the mind. Of far more importance was the fact that he was the first living human with whom I had ever talked who knew what he was talking about in regard to alcoholism from actual experience. In other words, he talked my language. He knew all the answers, and certainly not because he had picked them up in his reading. This is a most powerful, wonderful blessing to be relieved of the terrible curse with which I was afflicted. My health is good, and I have regained my self-respect. And the respect of my colleagues, my home life is ideal, and my business is as good as can be expected in these uncertain times. I spend a great deal of time passing on what I learned to others who want it and need it badly. I do it for four reasons. It is a sense of duty, it is a pleasure, because in so doing, I am paying my debt to the man who took the time to pass it on to me, because every time I do it, I take out a little more insurance for myself against a possible slip. Now, I want to take Just a minute here, because I know that it's really getting late, and I know is probably going to be mad at me, but I want to take just a minute here to touch on a couple of things very, very quickly. First of all, the Oxford groupers later on were pulling apart from the AAs. The AAs craved anonymity. The Oxford groupers wanted more publicity. The book was written in 37 and 38, and, the Ox- and came out in April of 39, and the Oxford groupers were not happy with the book because the book, they said, didn't give credit to the Oxford group movement who had gotten these guys sober. They wanted a much more religious book, and the book was not what they had pr- approved of. Clarence Snyder in Cleveland, Ohio, on the 11th of May, 1939, made the split by having a meeting just four aas and alcoholics anonymous the fellowship of alcoholics anonymous took its name from the book alcoholics anonymous and in may of 1939 was the first meeting of the split between the oxford groupers and the alcoholics up until then they had been the drunk squad of the oxford group i don't have the time to go into that now but i want to take a look and what he's talking about because he's talking about step 12. Dr. Bob was a far more effective messenger of this than Bill. 70% of the first 100 recoveries came from Akron and 30 obviously came from New York. What was different? Well, the Akron group, the Akron groups were much more into the spiritual angle and the New York groups were not so much into it. Number 1, number 2, But Bob made sure that these guys were absolutely ready before he would even waste his time with them. And Bill spent a lot of time trying to proselytize this to people who absolutely didn't want this. We have in our traditions today that it's a program of attraction rather than promotion. Well, the biggest promoter was Bill Wilson. He'd be pulling these guys in and most of them didn't even want to go. But it's very important for us to note as compulsive overeaters how unbelievably important this history is to us. In Oxnard, California, in the mid 50s, after the message went from Bob to the people that he gave it to, who gave it to the next generation, who gave it to the next generation, there was a man who lived there named Jim Willis. And Jim Willis was a gambler, and he was an alcoholic as well, but he knew that gamblers who were not alcoholics needed a place to go where they could identify. And so he started a 12-step program called Gamblers Anonymous. And Gamblers Anonymous in November of 1959 was on television in Los Angeles and other cities in California. They were, I think, wearing like fake masks or something. I'm not sure. But they had a The show called The Paul Coates Show. And in November of 1959, there was a housewife in West Los Angeles named Roseanne S., who was watching the show about members of Gamblers Anonymous. And knowing that there was a friend of her husband, Marvin's, who was a compulsive gambler, she felt that she could help him by taking him to a meeting of Gamblers Anonymous. And in Los Angeles, California, just so happens that Jim Willis, the founder of GA, was there that night. Roseanne and Marvin S. brought their friend to this meeting, and Roseanne sat in the back and identified 100% with what she was hearing. At the end of the meeting, she approaches Jim, founder to founder here. She says to Jim, Do you think a program like yours based on these steps? could help someone like me with their food problem. And he turned to her after hearing the pain in her voice and said, you know, Roseanne, I don't see why not. Now on January the 19th, 1960, January 19th, 1960 was the very first meeting of a new organization called Overeaters Anonymous. And that's why, and I suggest you come there The OA birthday is always as close to that date as they can get it. Sometimes it's in early February. This year it just happens to be the weekend of Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday, and it's going to be at the LAX Hilton. And the LAX Hilton is a wonderful venue for the OA birthday. It's, It's just a stone's throw from the airport, and I'm going to be there, as are many, many of us going to be there. It's wonderful. Uh, And and, and the other convention that we're going to have in New Jersey is fantastic, too. The OA birthday is always close to January 19th, because that was our first meeting ever in Los Angeles, California. Now, independent of this, in Ruling, Texas, there was a guy, and his name was A.G. Ainsworth, And A.G. Ainsworth, like Bob and Bill, was a tall, lanky guy, but he was a compulsive overeater who had been on a church silent retreat with his friend Robert. And Robert and A.G. lived in Luling, Texas, and they were driving home, and Robert was driving, and A.G. said to him in a way that was almost joking so that if Robert made fun of him, he could say, oh, I was just kidding. But Robert heard the pain in A.G.'s voice when A.G. said, Robert, do you think a program like yours of AA could help someone like me with their eating? And Robert heard the pain in A.G.'s voice and simply said, you know, A.G., I don't see why not. And in Luling, Texas, there was another woman named Norma B., who A.G. was sure had this illness too. And they started a group called Gluttons Anonymous. There were five groups of Gluttons Anonymous in 1962 and 16 groups of Overeaters Anonymous. And AG decided to call the main office in New York, the AA office, main office, to see if anybody else that they knew of was working these steps around a food issue. They gave him Roseanne's number in Los Angeles. And on a Sunday afternoon, A.G. and Norma B. and members of the five groups of Gluttons Anonymous called Roseanne in Los Angeles and it was like Stanley finding Livingston. A.G. flew his private jet with Norma and members of the five groups into Los Angeles and they had their very first business meeting and they incorporated Sandy B., the attorney and They got all registered as a tax-free corporation, and everything was made legal, and AG became the first man in OA, because up until that point, the charter of OA forbade men from coming in. It was just for women only, and he became the first chairman of the board of trustees of Overeaters Anonymous, and in a vote of 16 to 5, the name officially became Overeaters Anonymous. And that's why you don't see Gluttons Anonymous today. And the message finally got to each and every one of us on this line or anybody that's listening on the podcast. (laughs) So we are charged with a responsibility to pass this on. Because, again, it is a sense of duty. It is a pleasure. Because in so doing, I am paying my debt to the man who took time to pass it on to me because every time I do it, I take out a little more insurance for myself against a possible slip. Let's finish. Unlike most of our crowd, I did not get over my craving for liquor. Now, when he uses that word craving, he doesn't mean physical craving like we mean today. He means a yearning in the mind for it. Much during the first two one and a half years of abstinence, I was <clears throat> excuse me, all, almost always – It was almost always with me, but at no time have I been anywhere near yielding. I used to get terribly upset when I saw my friends drink and knew I could not, but I schooled myself to believe that though I once had the same privilege, I had abused it so frightfully that it was withdrawn. So it doesn't behoove me to squawk about it, for after all, nobody ever had to throw me down and pour liquor down my throat. If you think you are an atheist, an agnostic, a skeptic, or have any other form of intellectual pride which keeps you from accepting what is in this book, I feel sorry for you. If you think you are strong enough to beat the game alone, that is your affair. But if you really and truly want to quit drinking liquor for good and all and sincerely feel that you must have some help, we know that we have an answer for you. We know we have an answer for you. Let's read it in English. It never fails if you go about... If you go about it with one half the zeal you have been in the habit of showing when you were getting another drink, your Heavenly Father will never let you down. If you are an atheist and you're reading these words, you are welcome here. If you are an agnostic, you are welcome here. The point that he's trying to make is that no matter who you are, As long as you are willing to believe that there is a power greater than yourself, you can recover. We welcome anyone here who wants to recover, atheists, agnostics, whatever. Jimmy Burwell was an atheist, and he came in, and he was one of AA's pioneers. Didn't get along well with Bill Wilson. They were at each other's throats constantly. But Jimmy Burwell drove home this idea of God as you understand God. He was an atheist, and he would not allow anyone to tell him what God or who God must be. This is the most magnificent miracle is the, is the formation of these of these groups. You know, it is said in closing here, Leah, I'm going to wrap it up here in a minute. I promise. It is said that in the millennium to follow, that there will be three things that the 20th century will leave and bequeath to other millenniums as its legacy. Number one, Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, man's entrance into flight. Number two, the atomic slash computer age. And number three, the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. This has been an incredible journey for me. I came in at 500 pounds. I was to get up to 700 pounds. I came in at 1979, stayed till 82, left, came back in 86, and I've lost a little over 500 pounds in that time. I have had ups and downs like anybody. Good times and bad times find us all. But as Shakespeare said, nothing is good or bad. It is only my ego that makes it so. I have been through the ups and I have been through the downs and I have not found it necessary to compulsively overeat. I have 18 and a half years of beautiful abstinence. I am free. I am recovered. But I must remember that I have to do these steps every single day like my hair is on fire or I will lose it and I will eat again no matter how much pain and torture and loneliness this illness has caused me. I will seek it again because that's what compulsive overeaters do. If you're listening to this and you're thinking to yourself, what has Dr. Bob got to do with me? doesn't matter. Try this program. Do what it says. See if you can find your higher power lacking. I'll bet you can't. Test God and do these steps. Do them as they're laid out in the big book and you will recover. And this is the greatest way of life imaginable. I hope that I see every one of you in New Jersey in September. I can't wait to get there. It is going to be a, an outrageously fantastic convention. I would look at something like this and think, I don't have the money or I can't go or I have nothing to wear or what are people going to think of me? We're just going to love you. We're just going to embrace you emotionally. We're going to love you and love you and love you. Be in New Jersey. I want to meet each and every one of you on this line. This is not a dress rehearsal, and this New Jersey convention is going to be memorable. And with that, I will pass away a thank you.
1: Thank you, Harlan, for your captivating and enlightening presentation today. Thank you so much for your generous <laughs> service, as always. Harlan's contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording, so stay tuned for that. And we'll now transition to a question-answer segment. Star one to unmute, please, and identify yourself if you have a question for Harlan. Anne Marie M. Anne Marie. Anyone else? Gina from Rhode Island. Is that Dana? Jean, J E A N. Got it. I would like to know. Um, oh, one minute. Let's, let's okay. let Anne Marie go and then it'll be your turn. Okay, Anne Marie, go ahead, please.
2: Okay. Um, thank you, Leah, for your service. And, and Harlan, I love listening to history and I appreciate you so much. Um, my question is uh, Bill was recovered, and I guess I was thinking that. Dr. Bob was recovered, but I heard his, you know, and I've read this very many times that he was not, he, you know, he didn't have the, the obsession hadn't been removed, or as he said, the craving hadn't been removed for two and a half years. So, mm-hmm. is he, was he, and he did a lot of 12 um, step work during that two and a half mm-hmm. years when he was still mm-hmm. having the obsession. Was he considered recovered?
3: I, I would consider I, him recovered. Far be it for me to tell to say Dr. Bob wasn't recovered. I mean, who am I? I'm a uh, uh I mean, come on. I would say he was recovered. He gave medical attention to 5,000 alcoholics without thought of charge. And when we look at the life of Dr. Bob, which I didn't have time to go into before, this man was a rampart of service. There were people, not one or two, that lived with them, go to their home in Athens, see how small the home was. You know, these. when you read in these stories about how people lived with the Smiths and how they would come there at all hours of the night, you know, these, this was the height of the Depression. People didn't have telephones, by and large. There were a few people that did. The doctors had a telephone. The Smiths had a telephone. There were certain other ones that had telephones. But the bottom line is they would just drop in. And it didn't matter whether it was dinner time or whatever. Everybody was welcomed in each other's homes. And Dr. Bob left no stone unturned to show people a hospitality, a love, and an open welcome back to his life like nobody did. Once he recovered, you bet he was. You absolutely know he was. I didn't even have time to go into half the things that he did, but you bet he was, absolutely, yes. All
2: right, well, thank you. So someone that is now, you know, abstinent, um, but yet still craving, uh, not craving. Craving meaning
3: physical craving or or mentally obsessing
2: about it? Obsessing, you know, about the food. If you're obsessing about
3: about food, you, you need to look at your step work. He never said in there he was obsessing about liquor he said there were thoughts of liquor. Sometimes I okay. can walk into a grocery store and they're baking cookies or they're baking pie. I'll get a thought. But I'm not responsible for my first thought. I'm responsible for my first action.
2: Thank you. So, you, you know, Thank, okay.
3: I, I'm not responsible for my first thought. I'm responsible for first
2: action. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks, Anne-Marie. Um, Gene L., mm-hmm. your turn.
2: Okay. Uh, thank you, Helen, for that fascinating
5: presentation. It was thank wonderful. Um, I would like you to clarify a
1: term I like hear quite often. I, can't, I, can't, I think, can't understand what it means mental twist.
3: The mental twist is, is activated by the buildup of emotions. The mental twist is the thought that you have in your mind that you want to eat food. When Bill wrote the 12 and 12, he called it the mental obsession. But because I'm a big book dude, I try to stick the big book terminology and the words mental obsession are not in the big book, so I avoid them. The mental twist is the thought that I have when I think I'd like to eat Oreo cookies. And that thought is just with me. That's the mental twist. The mental blank spot is the built-in forgetter. I cannot remember what the food does to me. I can only focus in on what it does for me. But the words mental twist are in the big book, but in the 12 and 12, he will call it the mental obsession. Does that help?
5: Yes. Thank
1: you very much. Okay.
3: You're welcome, Jean. Thanks for the question.
1: Thank you. Who else has a question for Harlan? Star one to unmute. (laughs)
6: Julia, Julia, Gen Z. Sylvia, PA. PA. Gen Z. Karina S.
5: Janice M. Okay,
1: I have Sylvia, I have Jen Z, I have Janice M. I hear you, Matt. Who did I miss? Barbara. Barbara? Your last initial, Barbara? S. S. Okay. Did I miss Carla S? Yes. Okay. Anyone else? All right, that's a good list. Sylvia, let's start with you.
6: Okay, um, Harlan, thank you so much for um, your presentation. That was really wonderful. Um, I need to ask, when did you have your spiritual awakening, Harlan?
3: I had a profound spiritual awakening in 1986, and then I chose not to do everything I needed to do, and I had a profound spiritual awakening that began 18 and a half years ago. And I still am working on it today. I feel God very much in my life. I've never had a spiritual experience. I have had a spiritual awakening of the educational variety that came slowly over time. I pray all the time. The very first thing I do in the morning is I do step 11. Um, I pray the St. Saint Saint Francis prayer every morning, very first. The, my eyes are open, and bang, if I have to go to the bathroom, fine. But otherwise I am on that Saint Francis prayer and I pray incessantly through the day. I did not have what Bill Wilson had, uh that, you know, that bang that big bang kind of thing. I didn't have that. I had a I had a spiritual awakening that developed slowly over
4: time. Thank you so much, because that's what's happening to me. No big
3: You're bang. That's what happens over. to most of us, Thanks. Sylvia. Don't feel bad. That's what happens to most of us. Bill was very atypical. Bill had this profound light light experience. I don't I don't see a lot of that that big bang kind of thing much uh, in, in in twelve steps. I see like you and I slowly over time. Great. Thank
2: you so much. I appreciate You're everything. Welcome. Thank you. No problem.
1: Thanks, Sylvia. Jen Z. Number one, to unmute.
6: Here I am. We hear you. Okay. Um, thank you, Harlan, for your message today. It was very enlightening. I have what I hope is a three-part question. I hope you can follow it. Um, I have so many questions. Um, number one, <clears throat> a which group started the actual 12 steps? Was it the Oxford group? Oxford um,
3: group had six steps. They did not have 12 steps. They had four absolutes and five C's. The Oxford group had a six-step program and they had their absolutes, the four absolutes, absolute honesty, absolute unselfishness, absolute purity, absolute love, and they had the five C's or five procedures. They were confidence, confession, conviction, conversion, and continuance. And they had their six-step program. They did not have a 12-step program. The 12 steps was AA.
6: Okay. And um, in your research, did you find out why the um, AA group took the Christian aspect out of their group as it was in the Oxford group?
3: Well, they didn't want to be denominational. They knew that, that Jews were going to come in. They knew that Buddhists were going to come in. Muslims were going to come in. People of no religion were going to come in. They didn't want a sectarian group. They wanted, they have references to many, I mean, if you gave me more time, I could, you know, I could go to town on this. But uh, there are many, many references to Oxford group terminology in the big book. Uh, page 77 is my favorite. It says, our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. That's why I'm here. That's why I survived. But the word maximum is an Oxford group term. They would go and ask each other, are you maximum? Are you maximum? That means are you serving God in a maximum kind of thing? I'm getting a text. I didn't say the six steps of the Oxford group movement, so I'll go through them very quickly. Complete deflation, dependence and guidance from a higher power, moral inventory, confession, restitution, and continued work with other alcoholics. That's the six steps of the Oxford Group movement. But Bill Wilson and, and them, they didn't want to chase anyone out. And that's mm. why.
6: Okay. And my last question um, it's a bit obscure, but I'm not sure. Um, the page number in AA, um, it's in the, between, probably in the 60s. Um, I think Bill and Bill's story, he makes reference to alcoholics having a moral psychology. Does that ring a bell to you? Well.
3: I don't. Moral psychology is a term used in the doctor's opinion. And okay, I don't know what that means. Moral psychology simply means spiritual awakening. That's okay. what they called it back then, a spiritual awakening. What okay. it might I- mean to some people is just truthful thinking, honest thinking. Can I drink on the truth? Can I eat on the truth? If I'm truthful and I'm looking at a chunky bar, Or I'm looking at a chocolate turtle. Can I eat that and think to myself, this time it's not going to hurt me? Of course not. But in my insanity, I know I'm not going to die tonight by eating a chocolate turtle, so I'll eat one, then two, then nine, then 43, and I'm off to the races. You see the terminology in the doctor's opinion, moral psychology, Just think in your mind, spiritual awakening. I'm glad you you asked that question because a lot of people have that question. Jen, I'm so glad you asked that question. You have no idea. Thank you.
2: Thank
1: you.
5: Thanks, Jen. Janice M. Well, thank you. Um, Thank you so much, Leah. And, oh, my goodness, Holland, thank you so much. You know, I'm a long-timer, and I have been so enlightened, of course, every time you talk. Now, I have a question on page 180, and and believe with the word cured. I absolutely know from my own experience that I am not cured. All Right. Right. Um, you know, because that's, I mean, I just know that it's one day. But what, why did they have this cure? Did, can you explain that to me?
3: It was Bob's writing. And at the yeah. time that he wrote this,
5: mm-hmm.
3: um, obviously uh, he used the term, but we shy away from that term today. I am not cured of compulsive overeating. I am in recovery. I am recovered from compulsive overeating, but I'm never cured. If I stop doing steps, if I stop helping other people, if I stop running around the country doing big book studies or retreats, if I stop answering my phone, I will be back in the arms of an Oreo cookie before you can say two and 2 is 4. But I am never cured. I really don't know why he used it, Janice. I really wish I, I did. But what I do know is he probably really meant recovered he probably really met recovered rather than short. I believe that, too. I believe believe that.
5: Thank you so much, Medea. You're
3: welcome. Thanks, Janice.
7: You're welcome.
3: And Janice, thank you for everything that you do all the time for this this organization. I I just want to say thanks for your
1: service as well. Yes, indeed. Thanks, Janice. Barbara S., please, your turn.
2: Star one to unmute. I can hear you, Barbara. Uh, yes, yeah, this is Barbara S. I didn't realize it wasn't unmuted. Uh, Carolyn, this is the first time that I've heard you speak. Um, I've come to the morning meetings on occasion. Uh, today I was due at my home uh, face-to-face, but I had to do in the house. And it's a blessing. I just have to tell you, this is a blessing that I came on. I heard you speak. I uh, reviewed, you know, you helped us review uh, the, this part of the big book. And just thank you very much. Very inspirational. I don't have a specific question, but I felt I had to say that. Thank you. God thank bless. Thank you so much, Barbara. Thank you.
1: Thank you. And Matt M., your question, please. Hi, right, Harlan. Thank you for your service. This
3: is Matt Hi, Matt. Hi. Listen, I want to ask a question. Can you name someone a piece of literature where you get all the historical information? Because you know a lot over your 18 and a half years. <laughs> well, I had very, very good mentors in this program. I continue to have good mentors. Um, I have mentors in this program that are beyond what I deserve. <laughs> I have a wonderful sponsor. He lives in California, Los Angeles, West Los Angeles, California. And um, I have had many, many mentors who really gave me an appreciation. There are conference approved and non-conference approved sources of literature on this that are wealthy beyond comprehension with information. Um, one of the things that I will tell you that I got a lot of information from is Dr. Bob and the Good Old Timers, which is a conference-approved piece of literature, and it tells the story of the Akron groups, and it tells the story of many, many things. But with all the information that you have online, it's it's amazing. And here's another thing, and I will leave you, and it's so good to hear your voice, Matt. But one of the other ways I learn a lot is I listen a lot to AA speakers. I work out every day. I do the bicycle, not a real bicycle, but the ones that don't go anywhere. Stationary, stationary bicycle. Stationary bicycle. And while I'm on the bicycle, um, a lot of times I will listen to Bill and I'll listen to Clancy and I'll listen to, you know, a lot of these guys and you get a wealth of history from these guys. You just get a wealth of history and you just learn so much from that. So that's, that's where I pick it up from. But read everything out there. You know, read Dr. Bob and the Good Old Timers. Read Pass It On. Read um, AA Comes of Age. Um, there's just a wealth out there of stuff. But thanks for the thanks. question, Matt. And it's very good to hear your voice. I look forward to seeing you in September.
1: Thank you, Harlan. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Carla S, your turn. Star 1 to unmute, Carla.
2: <clears throat> we can't hear I'm you. Right. Carla. Okay. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Yep, we hear you. Okay. Sorry about that. Um This is Carla S. in Washington State, and Harlan, it's really good to hear you. Um, Thank you so much for your share. Also, um, my question was, um, I've heard you speak before about we need to continue to obviously outreach to newcomers in the room and um, people in the rooms who are still suffering. But I'm curious on your thoughts on how to reach out more effectively to people who haven't made it into the rooms yet at all, like they had to back when everything started. So that's my question. Thanks.
3: How can we attract newcomers is your question. Is that correct, Carla? Yes. Okay. There are three things you can do today and I can do today to attract people into the doors of OA. We can recover, we can recover, and we can recover. And in our recovery, we are sending a message. Whether I want to be sending a message or I do not want to be sending a message, I am sending a message. And the message is either I'm spreading the illness, spreading the disease, or I'm spreading the recovery. I told you that I have 18 and a half years of abstinence currently. 18 and a half years ago, my little daughter was 19 months old and I was in relapse at that time. We were living in Eugene, Oregon at that time. It was an August day, hot like the blazes for Eugene. Hot hot in Eugene is 90. Hot here is like 400. But she was running around in her diaper. It was a Sunday morning just like this. And she was in her diaper, and her mother was back-to-back with her, and her mother had just shopped for groceries, and just everything was laid out and getting put away and getting put in bags and getting put in cupboards and refrigerator whatever it was and my little daughter who I love more than life itself she opened the door of the refrigerator and she while the refrigerator was open she turned her head to her mother and said shit Esther there's nothing in here I wonder where she got that message she got that from daddy who was in rewraps. Fast forward now, we're living in Scottsdale, Arizona. I'm in very good recovery. I am working my butt off in recovery. The very first episode of a comedy was on television about a guy and his brother who won the lottery, and they wanted to incur the favor of karma, and they were running around with a list of people they had hurt to go apologize and make right with them. She comes into the family room at our house in Scottsdale, looks at the TV, looks at me, looks at the TV, looks at me, and says, Those guys are just doing their eighth and ninth step, right there. That's how far she had come without a word from me. We are sending a message. We are either sending the message, Carla, of the illness, or we are sending the message of the recovery. And that is the best thing we can do. Go to meetings. Uh, go on, you know, do vision for you. Definitely go attend vision for you every day. Like you know, like your hair is on fire. This is the Renaissance of OA here in, in vision. But go to your face-to-face meetings and spread the word of the recovery, and that's as much as you can do. But so thanks for the question. I appreciate it.
1: Thanks, Carla.
4: Lori T. I didn't catch you. Lori T. Mara Z. Lori.
1: Lori. Okay, sorry, Lori. No,
4: it's okay.
1: Okay, who else? This will be our final invitation for questions this morning. Ellen W. Ellen W. Devora L.
2: Devora L.
5: Sima M.
1: Sima M. Anyone else?
2: W. Hmm? Got it. All
1: right. If everybody could mute, please, except for Lori T. Thank you. Go ahead, Lori.
4: Oh, gosh. Thank you, and, and good morning to everyone. I'm um, Harlan. I'm Harlan. I just um, listened to you last night as I went to bed, and it, and I hear you the first thing when I wake up. So thank you so much <laughs> for giving me.
6: You <laughs> <you're in laughs> not, I know. I'm
4: not going to make a joke <laughs> about that. Uh, my first question is a little silly, is had you thought of any more analogies for what the disease is doing? Uh, one day maybe I'll tell you a couple I thought of, but here's my question. And it might seem a little trivial, but it's important to me um, to hear your take on it just because of your depth of knowledge. Um, I read stories in the back of the book and they're far worse um, in detail than this one. And I was wondering, do you have any idea why Dr. Bob's story is called a nightmare? And then he doesn't he doesn't go into a tremendous nightmare. I mean I can't imagine, but you know, some of the other stories go into significant details and tragedies, and I was wondering what you think the naming of his story means in relationship to the way his story is actually kind of, um, you know what I mean? It, it doesn't seem as, mm-hmm. as tragic. Well, Can you share with his, me your thoughts?
5: Yeah. He talks about almost
3: losing his, he talks about losing 17 years to drinking. He talks about not being able to pay his bills. He talks about lying to his wife. He talks about drinking against his will. He talks about the degradation and shame that he felt every time he would lie to end. That's pretty nightmarish. But Dr. Bob, Lori, Dr. Bob was not a man who wanted to be in the spotlight. Not at all. And a lot of the stories that you read, or all the stories that you read, were written after he wrote his. And so these stories were written with a little bit more of a theatrical kind of uh, direction to them, because these guys wanted to make it into the big book, and these guys wanted their story to seem, you know, very, very tragic, and they were. Alcoholism is a tragic illness, but he talks about losing years of his life, getting thrown out of school, getting asked to leave school, getting you know, where his dad had to come and get him, but it's just the way he writes. Dr. Bob was a very humble man. He had a humility that really counterbalanced Bill Wilson. You know, it said that if Bill owned AA, that you'd have to buy a franchise or he would have sold it. And if Dr. Bob was in charge of AA, you'd still have to go to King's School in Akron, Ohio to go to a meeting. So they balanced each other very, very well. Bob was a humble guy, a humble man. He preferred doing his work behind the scenes. But because he is the co-founder, his story will always and forever headline the story section. You will never see a time, even centuries after we're gone, where his story won't be the number one story here. But he wrote it, you know, early on, and he didn't write it with the kind of theatrics that he could have put into it had he wanted to make more of a splash. But it's really to know the man and his humility is to is to know the question, is to know the answer. But I, I pr- love question, Lori. Thank you. Thank you, Lori.
4: Thank you, Harlan. Thank you, Leah.
5: You're welcome.
1: Ellen W., your turn.
5: Hi, this is Ellen W. Um, W. I just, I'm a, I'm a physician, so I always giggle when I listen to the stories about Doc, Dr. Bob, and I'm so grateful. Harlan, I just, I wanted to thank you. I've You're been welcome. in the program since, um, I think 1975. Um, and th- thank you. I'm just speechless. Thanks. And I want you to know if there's ever any way that you can can use a physician. Um I would I'm available to help. Um um and thanks. I'm in Chicago. Thank
3: you. You're in Chicago? Oh, okay. Um thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ellen. Um I'm getting a text. What is the Yiddish word of the day? Okay, it'll have to be Bubby Mansa
5: because I
1: didn't really cover anything else.
3: Okay, so the Yiddish word of the day is Bubby Mansa. Okay.
2: (laughs) All
1: right. All right, everybody make note of that. (laughs) And And (laughs) Devora
7: L., your turn. Hi, this is Deborah L. Harlan, thank you so much for your selfless service. You've just been life saving to me as someone new to recovery. I'm so grateful to report. And I wanted to ask if you could talk about, you know, the, the part in the big book where we're not we will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. And I'm only sharing that as just a human being really that realizes it for twenty years of my life while I was compulsively overeating. Thank you, Yosef. I'm sorry. Um, while I was compulsively overeating, you know, I lost so much time and I was blocked Mm -hmm. and I realized that that is a resentment. Mm -hmm. It's something that I'm learning that resentment is something I re feel and I've been talking to God about it and so grateful to be in recovery. Now, what Mm -hmm. might you offer for that, um, you know, for not only surrendering it to God, but anything else you could share about not regretting that past chapter of our life, which was a significant amount of years where many of us were blocked. Thank you so much.
3: Okay, Savora, thank you, uh, thank you for your question. I um, I mourn I mourn the decades that I gave to your illness. I mourn those decades, and I'll never get one minute of them back. Um, but what I do know is in the story that we just read. We just read that what was valuable to the formation of Alcoholics Anonymous was the experience that Bill Wilson brought Bob of his drinking, of the horror and the nightmare of his alcoholism. Without the nightmare of compulsive overeating, without the things that I went through in my life, I went on my first date with a girl. I was 35 years of age. I was 335 pounds as a senior at Mather High School in Chicago. I was 500 pounds by the time I graduated college. I was over 600 pounds shortly thereafter. My mom died when I was 22. My dad died when I was 24. Their illnesses were destructive and long over years of time. Death was a merciful blessing for both of them. I gave this illness decades of my life that I will never get back. But it is because of those events and the loneliness and the tortured solitary existence that I was forced into by my obesity, that I can identify with people that others may not be able to identify. There's a young man that just was on the question and answer period and he was over 600 pounds and I was over 700 pounds. I could relate things to him that others cannot. I work with people and there is an identification that comes from these experiences that were welded into me by living them, not reading them, not hearing about them. They were welded. They were fabricated into my soul by living them, not a day at a time, but decades of my life were flushed down the toilet because of them. It is the thing that is of maximum utilitarianism, maximum utility, for us, working with others is our experience. But we're not going to get that experience sitting around feeling pleasure. That experience comes from the hell that is this illness. Do do I wish I had the time back? Yes. Do I wish I could go back? Yes. Do I often lament the fact that had I been addicted to alcohol or drugs, girls would have been accessible to me. I was addicted to the one thing that is very effective girl repellent and that's food and, and being obese. I regret that. But I, I use it. I use it to identify with others and the greatest pleasure in my life is giving this to someone else. And it is the one thing that has helped me, like me, is to help other people do self-esteemable actions. So in doing these actions, I see their utilitarianism. I see how useful they are. And I know that it is evidence of a loving God, not a hateful God, a loving God. And I don't have to live that way anymore. I can maximize whatever time I have left by living in the sunlight of the spirit. I appreciate the question, Deborah. Thank
1: you. Thanks, Devorah. Sima M., your turn.
5: Hi, this is Sima M., Grateful Compulsive Overeer, living in recovery one day at a time in New Jersey. Harlan, uh, I do have a question, but I just wanted to say I, always, I this is the first time I have a different take on what you just said. I agree with everything except But I don't mourn the past. I'm 65 now. I was 23 when I first came in O.A. and uh, it was a long and rough recovery but uh, I came back to O.A. four years ago after a period of not being there and I if I weren't, if I hadn't gone through what I went through I don't think I would be able to enjoy life today. So even though I'm 65 I am enjoying it for the first time ever over the past four years. But my question is, you talked about the when you're on the, the bike, the stationary bike, you listen mm-hmm. to all these recordings. How do you mm-hmm. listen to them? And um, how can I get the same recordings that you have to listen to? Because I would very really simple. Uh, like very,
3: it. Very, very simple. Type in AA speakers, hit enter, you'll get SilkWorth.net, you'll get XA speakers. You'll have more at your fingertips than you could imagine. You will not be able to listen to them in your lifetime. Just type it in your browser, AA speakers, hit enter, and there will be more stuff coming up and you know what to do
5: with How do you get it so that you can listen to it in the gym, though? I, it's on my phone. I have a oh. headset. It's on my phone
3: because my phone has internet. Okay. Uh, if you just push the button on there, you just push put your finger on there where the little arrow is, you're ready to roll. And there is a wealth of information on Vision for You special editions. There are speakers on special edition, on Vision For You that are magnificent. Just go to the website of visionforyou.info. A vision, the number for you, dot info, and click on special editions, and sometimes just blindly pick one. Don't fish around. You know, sometimes I'll fish around. I want to listen to Tim or I want to listen to whoever. Nah, don't do that sometimes. The best surprises are when I don't fish around and I just put my finger on one of them and whatever one it is, I listen to it, and it, undoubtedly it will knock my socks off. So there's a wealth of information on a visionfree.info. Hit enter. Then go special editions and just type in AA Speakers and you're good to go. Thank you. It's good speaking with you again. Good speaking with you too. Sima, I look forward to seeing you in New Jersey.
1: Thanks, Sima. And our final question for the day comes from Rini W. Star one to unmute, Rini.
2: Can you hear me? No, you yeah. can't.
8: Okay. Sorry about that. Hello, Harlan. It is so wonderful to talk to you directly. I hear you every morning on A Vision for You, and I specifically like to tune in to the 7 o'clock a.m. my time, Eastern Time, to hear you and others. Um, I am a. I am struggling, I am in my disease, I am a compulsive, overeater, and bulimic, I am 63 years old, I am working the steps, but um, I know I'm supposed to be not working the steps, I'm very confused about that, because I'm still in my disease, um, I try, I really do, um, I guess, according to you and all the visionaries, I'm not trying and doing everything I'm supposed to. But I don't know how to stop what I do at night. I I relate to you. I am just enthralled by all of your speaking, your podcast, and everything I hear from you. Um, but I can't stop uh, my bulimia at night.
3: I'm not a big believer in can't. I'm not a big believer in can't. I'm more a believer in will and won't. Can't is not a big a big thing in my vocabulary here. Success comes in cans, not cans. So let's take a look at what we're doing here. Yeah. Let's dismantle everything we're thinking and dismantle everything we're doing, and let's throw all the parts in the garbage can, and let's start over again, and let's just say. You are powerless over your bulimia, but you are not helpless. Recovery is easier today than it has ever been since the beginning of time. We just got done talking about the access to speakers, access to meetings, access to all kinds of information that can come to you at lightning speed. You can go to a meeting anytime you want to. Go to a visionforyou.info. Click on Daily Podcasts, and you can listen in to a meeting of Overeaters Anonymous using the big book anytime, day or night. You have a member list. Go to a vision for you, the number for you. Go to Member List. Click on there. Look up people that are in your time zone. You can call those people for support, 24 hours, 12 hours. They'll all have on their call between this time and that time. Me, you can call 24/7. You can call me 24/7. If I'm not able to answer the phone, I will call you back. There's a member list on a vision for you. It's at the upper right-hand corner of your of your screen of your uh, web of your yeah your screen your website. Click on that and you'll see the names of people you can access that support. Now you need a couple days of clean abstinence and you can begin working the steps. There is not one of us that will not help you. There is not one of us that will not help you. We have to work the steps, work them quickly, work them like they're our hairs on fire, and eventually you will have a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps, and I promise you, I promise you the urge to purge, the urge to overeat, will leave you, but I'm not a big believer in can and can't, or excuse me, in can't. I'm a believer in will and won't. Would you be willing today, Sunday, July 9th, would you be willing today to not compulsively overeat or purge? Could you just do today? It's 7.38 in Arizona. I I assume you're in Eastern Time, so it's 10.38. Could you commit today that you're not going to overeat or purge? Yes. Would you be willing to do this? Would you be willing to call one of us if the urge to do that is upon you? Would you be willing to do that?
8: Yes, I find it hard, but yes, because I'm, I'm I, I, at the I, end I, of my it, rope. It's,
3: it's really, it's, it's really it, 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 it's, there's nothing in the book that says now it gets easy or now you get what you want. Mm-hmm. I understand that it's hard, but if we don't do today, we have to keep starting over from day one, day one, day one, and that can make anybody Meshuggah. Okay. That can make anyone Meshuggah. So the you understand what mishuga means crazy. Okay. Absolutely. Mishuga. Okay. I don't know. So the bottom line is that can make anyone mishuga. But what we're going to do today is we're going to do day one today so we never have to do day one ever again. Can you accept the fact that you're powerless over food and your life is unmanageable? Is that something you're willing to believe? Then you've already worked step one. Do you believe in your heart that there is a power greater than yourself that can restore you to sanity? I don't know. Why don't you take some time today to formulate a definition or a job description of that higher power? You don't have to believe in the higher power. You just mm-hmm. have to be willing to believe. I'm to willing. Be willing yeah, to believe. I'm willing. Willing to believe. Yeah, willing. That's step two. So you've already been through the first two steps. We're going quickly here, right? Mm-hmm. And then we can make a decision mm-hmm. to turn our life, which is our action, and our will, which is our thinking, over to God, which is going to be, that's the formal terms of surrender, and that means we're going to do 4 through 12. Would you be willing to make that decision to turn your will and life over to God? Yes. We're already on step four. You've already, I mean, obviously you have to go through the chapter and stuff, but the bottom line is, see how quickly it can go? It doesn't have to be a a, a whole Megillah here. Yeah. It doesn't have to be. A, I'm getting a text. Is Megillah, or Excuse me. sugar The Yiddish word of the day. No. The Yiddish word of the day is is a uh, boogie mindset. But the bottom line is is that this is how quick it can go. Let's just take today, and let's mm-hmm. do what we can today to recover, and then we'll tackle tomorrow. How does that sound?
4: That sounds good. Okay.
3: Okay. You're not alone. There's hundreds of people here. Uh hundreds of thousands of people are on that member list that will help you. Okay. You're not okay. alone. We love you.
8: Thank you. Thank you. Love you too, Harlan. Thank you. All right, Renie. All right.
2: Thank you, Renie.
1: And of course, thank you, Harlan, for welcome, your Maya. generous spirit and service and love to all of us.
2: Thank thank we
1: appreciate you. you. And let's close from page 164. Thank you very much. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order.